Take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We spent the last several weeks working through Paul's introduction to this letter uh, to the believers in Rome, and today he's going to begin this deep dive into talking about the idea of righteousness. And really, righteousness is going to be the theme from right now all the way through the end of the book. April 13th, 1970, what happened? We hear these iconic words from outer space coming back. What was it? Houston, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Now, I wasn't alive in 1970, but I've seen the movie, so it's got to be true, right? <clears throat> Houston, we have a problem. My boys, um, they've never seen Apollo 13, or, or um, they certainly weren't alive then. They've, they've read about it, and they picked up this statement of, Houston, we have a problem. And they'll say it every now and then, Houston, we have a problem. They have no idea if they've really got a problem or not. They're just, Houston, we have a problem. Today we're going to start to see that, that, man, we got a problem. In fact, we've all got a problem. Houston, we all have a problem. We all have a problem. Let's start, let's pick, pick up our reading in verse 18. So Romans chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse 18. Follow along with me as I read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness... Suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Father, in these moments, would you show us what your word means? But Father, deeper than that, we, we, we can know what it means, but it not affect us whatsoever. So Father, in addition to that prayer for showing us what it means, we pray, Lord, cut us to the core of who we are. Show us who we really are. But then Father, show us who either we are in Christ or who we could be in Christ in these moments ahead. Father, may you be glorified and lifted high in this room. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> Years ago, there was a, um, a campus ministry group at a really large secular university in the United Kingdom, and they wanted to get the gospel out to the students all over campus, and so they printed out the words to Romans chapter 1, verses 18, I think all the way up through verse 31 or so, so past where we read today. Um, they, um, they, they printed it in such a way that you couldn't tell it was Scripture. There was no verse numbers, no passage. Um, they made it look really nice, and it seemed like the words were written by somebody in the, in the 21st century. It wasn't long after they started distributing these things that the leaders of the campus ministry are called to go before the university authorities, and were told in no uncertain terms, you have got to stop this. You cannot continue to, um, to spread this hate speech, is, is what they were told. 
the university authorities demanded to know who wrote the words. They had no idea that it was from the book of Romans, from, from the Bible. Now, I'm not really sure if there was anything else on that flyer in addition to um, the words from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Um, I don't know if there's anything that provided hope or that pointed to Jesus. I would hope that there was more than just those verses to provide faithfulness to the gospel. But the reality is that these verses that we are entering into today are offensive to a whole lot of people. And I approach it in, in a way that is, is, is such a way that I'm doing it humbly, knowing that next week we're going to get into a really difficult topic because Paul de- deals with a really difficult topic. So I want you to hear my heart in this is that um, I, am, I am approaching this in humility, understanding that the Lord, the Holy Spirit has got to work on our individual hearts to show us what it is that he has for us from his word. Paul's not going to give a nice little back rub to the readers of the letter. Um, I've entitled this, this sermon today, The Truth About God's Wrath. We're going to spend the next several weeks really kind of talking about the wrath of God. So we'll, we'll touch on it a little bit each week. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's about to write one of the most in-your-face accounts of the truth of God's wrath that's found in the entire Bible. So we're going to unpack this over the next several weeks. I want to encourage you in whatever, whatever way you're taking notes, whether it's on your phone or on the back of the handout, or maybe it's in the, the um, journal Bible that I've told you about, Write down this passage of Scripture, okay? Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And then underneath that, write these words. No one is righteous. No one is righteous. Because that's the theme of what Paul's talking about here in this, in this large section of Scripture. No one is righteous. Uh, Verse 18 here in chapter 1 is the header for this whole section, okay? Here's what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All people who stand apart from Christ stand condemned under the righteous wrath of God. Now, we hear that term wrath, we think about wrath, and we've got a very earthly view of that wrath. Maybe you've felt the wrath of your boss at some point, or maybe the wrath of a parent when they have a strong emotional outburst and they're, they're angry about something. Sometimes it's even a, a wild, even violent outburst. It could seem like it's out of control. But that's not the wrath of God. In fact, if, if we read Psalm 103, we're going to see that God is slow to anger and rich in compassion. God is slow to anger and rich in compassion. His wrath is not an emotional outburst against a person. But listen, he is at the same time not going to wink at sin and say, oh, look look how cool that is, or you're good. He can't do that. In his holiness and who he is, he cannot do that. Sin has to be dealt with. He's not going to sweep sin under the rug as as if it doesn't matter. God's wrath is a holy anger that is against the sin that flies in the face of his holiness. It's not something to be trifled with. It's not something to view flippantly. He is slow to anger, but his anger is justly red hot for the unrepentant sinner. We read there in verse 18 that God's wrath is revealed, is revealed. It's continually revealed is is the tense that's used there. It's not just past judgment. It's not just future judgment. God's wrath is being revealed even right now. 
is revealed, past, present, and future. Uh, If you look at the the rest of of chapter one, we're gonna find three times these words. God gave them up. God gave them up. You find it three times in the rest of chapter one. When people choose to sin and ignore the holiness of God, his judgment is on them. And we see that even in him giving them up to chase their sin. That's a form of God's judgment, to go chase their sin. One day in the future, God is going to judge everybody who rejected Jesus. But a foretaste of that judgment, a little taste of that judgment in the future is seen even now in the way that he hands people over to their sin and to their consequences. The pleasures of sin last for a moment, but the consequences of sin are brutal and long-lasting. We would hope, and I hope that you pray that the consequences of this sin and the foretaste of judgment that is found right now in sinners would cause people to turn their hearts back to God. In fact, I don't think it's a bad thing for us to pray that a person in sin would be absolutely miserable and that the misery of their sin would turn their hearts and minds back to God. It doesn't matter how deep a person is in sin, it's important that we pray and and continually point them to Jesus. That this taste of judgment that comes from the misery and the consequences of sin might just be what draws them back into a relationship with Jesus. Look at what God's wrath is against there, still in verse 18. God's wrath, wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All ungodliness and and unrighteousness. There's a lot of Christians who who skip over those words and they jump all the way down to a little bit later in the chapter where Paul uses the example of homosexuality and they say, that's what makes God angry. They completely miss that God's wrath is poured out on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. D.A. Carson describes sin as the de-godding of God. Sin is the de-godding of God. It's a human being deciding that they want to be God and they don't align their lives to the righteous standard that God has for his creation. Sin is saying, God, I don't care what you want. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you think I ought to be doing or know I ought to be doing. I'm going to do my own thing anyway. It's saying that I am God and you are not God. That's what sin is. Paul continues on here, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men continues, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Who by their unrighteousness suppress their tru- the truth. Is there anybody in here who has ever tried to stuff a sleeping bag back into the storage bag it comes in? If you haven't worked up a sweat trying to do that, then I need to learn from you how to do it because it drives me bonkers trying to do that. It wasn't too long ago that all four boys wanted their sleeping bags out and they wanted to play. <laughs> and then we tried to put them back and not a single boy could get their sleeping bag back in the bag. So who got to do it? Dad. Mom would have done it. She was doing something else. But you ever tried to do that? You stuff and you stuff and you stuff and you stuff trying to get that thing back into the, into the bag. And that's this picture that I get when I think about this, this idea of suppressing the truth with unrighteousness. It's like we stuff the truth away and away and away, try to get it out of sight, work to make sure it's not seen anymore. We have to work at it. 
man, do I see this in my life? When I'm in sin of any kind, I've, I've pushed the truth out of the way. I don't want to hear the truth. I don't want to see the truth. I don't want people to point it out. I ignore truth itself. I ignore God's word. By my sin and my unrighteousness is what, is what pushes it away. My unrighteousness gets rid or, or pushes the truth away. It doesn't take the truth away completely. It's still there, but I don't want any of it. So I push it away. And over time, it gets easier and easier and easier to suppress the truth. You get to the point where you're comfortable with your sin, and it doesn't matter what God has to say about the sin. You want what you want, so you're going to do what you want. And you become like that person stuffing the sleeping bag into its storage bag. You work and you work and you work to get that truth pushed away. But what Paul's about to explain to us is, hey, listen, there is no way, no way to get rid of the truth. And you're being foolish and futile, to even try. Look at verses 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, to mankind as a whole, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now suppression like we talked about a moment ago, suppression and ignorance are two different things. People try to claim ignorance, but there's no way to claim that there is not an intelligent designer to our world. Here's another one of those illustrations. Anybody ever tried to take a beach ball and push it under the water and keep it under the water when it's full of air? It's impossible, isn't it? You absolutely can't do it because that beach ball is going to come back to the top of the water over and over and over again. And the beach ball's there. It's plain for everybody to see. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. It's not like God's trying to hide in obscurity. He's clearly and plainly made himself known to his creation. Creation declares both the reality and the power of God. The question of God's existence remains a question only as long as a person tries to force that beach ball under the water. At some point, all a person's going to do is wear themselves out in trying to disprove the existence of God. And it might happen when they're alive, and it might happen when they die someday, but that beach ball of God's existence is going to come to the surface. Think about the power of God for just a second, okay? The, the power of God. You can look at creation. You can look at these invisible attributes, this reference there in verse 20, and God's power in creation and the sustainment of it can be clearly perceived. It's everywhere. Helen Keller um, recorded that uh, there was a time when Miss Sullivan, her teacher, being a very godly Christian woman, wanted to impart some truth to her about God. So Miss Sullivan went to Dr. Phillips, uh, Philip Brooks and asked him to come and tell Miss Keller about God. So as, as Dr. Brooks sat there, he talked with, with Miss Sullivan and, and she translated the words to Helen Keller through the finger pressures that she used for communication. Helen Keller can't see and she, she can't hear. But as she got to the idea about God, suddenly a light broke out in Helen Keller's face and she answered back in her own way. She said, oh, I know him. I've known him a long, long time. Even in the heart of someone who has no eyes to see, no ears to hear, there is a written revelation of God written on the human heart. And if we'll just listen to that revelation, there's a whole lot about God that we can know. 
What Paul's trying to get the Christians in Rome to understand is that there is no excuse for living in unrighteousness because the truth of God is clear. It is there for us to see. We can try to push it away, but we can't. There is no way that we can truly push it away. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, I think about one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. He has told you, oh man. Man, God has told you what is good. Now, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? What is good is that we live a life of holiness in accordance to the will of God. What is good is that we are in a right standing with our creator. Now, I want to... I I'm gonna take a pause right here, and I need, to, I need to come in with a really, really important side note to everything that we're talking about here. What Paul's talking about when he gets to Romans chapter one is general revelation, okay? General revelation is what can be known and seen of God just by observing the world at large. So if you see a sunrise, a sunset, the birth of a baby, physiology as a whole, things like that, that's general revelation where we can see the attributes, the power, the existence of God in those general things. Specific revelation is the specifics of the gospel and how to have a relationship with God through Jesus. Specific revelation is the word of God. This is why evangelism and world missions is so important. God has written on the heart of every human being the ability to know him through general revelation. But the way to know him is the gospel message that Christians take to the lost world. That's specific revelation. Salvation takes place when you've got the general revelation and the specific revelation, and they come together with a person sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who already has the ability to know God written on their hearts. So then what happens is the ability turns into the will to know God, and that is where salvation meets. He set the stage. Christians are the cast members that bring that message to the lost. We are the hands and feet and the voices of Jesus that take the message to the lost. Now, I wanted to make sure we understood that before we continue on here, okay? Let's pick up reading in verse 21. For although they knew God, that general revelation I just referred to, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is where I think about Psalm 103, excuse me, Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Oh, but there is this God-sized void in the life of every single person It's got to be filled somehow. So what are we going to do? There's a couple of choices that people have. It's actually only two choices. Um, They can worship the creator or the creation. That's what we see next here in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, you can worship the creator or the creation. The sad thing is that a whole lot of people choose to worship the creation. And what happens in that is that the God of music and the God of food and the God of sex and the God of art and the God of relationships, the God of work, 
they all replace Yahweh, the one true God. All of those gods that I mentioned are things that Yahweh created, but they were never meant to take preeminence in the God-sized hole inside of our lives. Only God can do that. What Paul is showing us is that, hey, we are born in unrighteousness as sinners. Something has got to fill this hole inside of our hearts, inside of our lives. What's it going to be, the creator or the creation? Paul David Tripp in his book, All and Why It Matters for Everything We Say, Do, Think, Say, and Do, he says this, and it's going to be on the screen so you can read along. At a deep and often unnoticed level, sin replaces worship of God with worship of self. It replaces submission with self-rule. It replaces gratitude with demands for more. It replaces faith with self-reliance. It replaces vertical joy with horizontal envy. It replaces a rest in God's sovereignty with a quest for personal control. We live for our glory. We set up our rules. We ask others to serve our agenda. In the next chapter, he says this. The problem is that all sinners replace God with something else. It is as natural and intuitive to us as breathing. All sinners replace God, the place that God is supposed to feel in our lives, with something else. So you think about that God-sized hole in your life. I want you to imagine with me a picture of yourself, and maybe you just want to do like an outline, or maybe you think of a specific picture, but you're thinking of a, of a picture of yourself, okay? Man, woman, child, whatever it is, in the middle of that picture is a circle right across your chest, and it's signifying this, this void. This void has got to be filled with something. It can't just stay empty. We all worship something, so there is something in that void right now. What would you say is currently in that circle for you? Is there something you're trying to worship that's not the creator? Is the worship of God even a part of the picture for you? What's in the circle? And is what is in the circle bringing fulfillment to you and glory to God? Because it can be both. A lot of times we fight for this worship what we want so we can feel fulfilled with no glory to God. What God promises in himself is fulfillment to us and glory to him. C.S. Lewis um, famously explained it like this. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. How many of you have been there, done that? Over and over and over and over again in life, you tried this, tried this, tried this, tried this, tried this, and none of it brings any kind of lasting satisfaction. And you think, if I can just get a little bit more of, or a little bit more of, or another, maybe I'll be happy. But it never, ever works. The only plausible explanation is that you were made for another world. You ever get the feeling that you don't belong? I don't belong in this world, something's not right? Well, there's a good chance you get that feeling because it's true, you don't belong in this world, in the sin-cursed world the way it is. You were made for another world. I hope that even though you're not in glory yet, 
that you belong to that other world that's being talked about. Because you can belong while living on this earth. Let's review here for a moment, okay? God's just wrath is poured out on unrighteousness. There's no excuse for unrighteousness. God has shown himself to us. In our unrighteousness, we suppress, we push back the truth, the truth of a loving God, a truth of a gospel of Jesus Christ that provides salvation, with truth of God's word. When that truth is suppressed, what does God do? He turns us loose to our sin. We're going to see this more and more over the next couple of weeks. Sin tries to do what only God can do, bring true fulfillment. Houston, we got a problem. Houston, we've all got a problem. Our problem isn't that there's something wrong with our space shuttle. Mankind's problem is that we are born sinners under the wrath of a holy God and who even people who profess to be Christians sometimes sin. But what can be done about this problem? Well, I'll tell you two things. First of all, there is no turning back the wrath of God without a relationship with God through Jesus. As long as there is no relationship with God through Jesus, God's wrath is resting on every single human being that that does not apply to. That person has got to repent of their sin and make Jesus their Lord and Savior. And can I tell you that if that's you, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to come to Jesus. Today is the day to repent of your sin and that holy, just wrath of God will be lifted off of you and what God will see in its place is the righteousness of Jesus that's added to your account. Where Jesus says, I'll take my righteousness and place it on your account. That's how this thing works. But then secondly, there may be people here who have repented of their sin and and, but yet they're living a, a life of suppressing the truth, pushing it back. I want what I want, and they're suppressing the truth. Jesus, in, in John chapter 8, said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There is no slavery like the slavery to sin. And Christian, if you were in sin... If there's any unrighteousness in you whatsoever, you've got to get rid of it. What does Jesus continue to say? Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Simple challenge that I would leave with all of us here today knowing there's a lot more we gotta talk about with all of this. Stop suppressing the truth, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, stop suppressing the truth. Christian, the way that you do that is by living in the truth, abiding in the truth, abiding in God's word. Immerse yourself in it. Let the Bible change your life, because it can. Here's a simple tool, and uh, before Pastor Dwayne was even up here earlier sharing about Date the Word and some of what they've been doing with that. I was thinking, you know what, this would be a perfect opportunity to tell people. Every single day, Dwayne sends out a message, an email. Date the Word. It's a devotional where you can just hear a verse, read a verse, and then have a devotional that goes with it. 
A simple way for you to be immersed in God's word is to be a part of receiving that from Date the Word. So after the service today, just go up to Dwayne or Danita and say, hey, I want to be a part of receiving that email from Date the Word. Okay? That's a simple way. At the very least, all of us should be immersing ourselves in God's word, in the truth, every single day. Father, thank you for your word that we have read today, studied today, and I pray have been quickened by today. Lord, your word sharpens us. It shows us what it looks like not only to find Jesus, but to live with an identity where he is our everything. We are your children. Lord, we are living in this sin-cursed world. But Father, we don't have to be a part of the world. We can be in the world, but not of it. So Father, show us what it looks like to not suppress the truth. Lord, we love you. But only because you first loved us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.